Hello, fellow lovers of all things green. I'm Mary Stone, and welcome to Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries. It's not only about gardens, it's about nature's inspirations, about grasping the glories of the world around us, gathering what we learn from Mother Nature, and carrying these lessons into our garden of life. So let's jump in in the spirit of learning from each other. We have lots to talk about. Hello, fellow listeners. It's Mary Stone, and I'm on the screen porch after a warm walk on the road. It wasn't terrible, though, because the sun was not shining. So I'm going to do something a little different here, and that is I'm just going to chat for a while and see where this podcast leads me. I am not sure as yet what our topic is. It occurs to me that sometimes it's better just to kind of, you know, go with the flow. I hope that the cicadas and the trees aren't too loud. It's um, beginning to sound like back to school. There is a shift going on in the leaves, which I always notice in August. Many folks don't notice that shift, and what happened on Friday's visit during my sing at the Home for Hospice is a lovely patient there named Linda noticed that the leaves were changing on the dogwood just outside her door. So it was something that I thought, wow, many people don't notice such things. And of course there are tired leaves that are falling on the road as well, along with acorns and nuts. In fact, over the weekend I was out tackling my very neglected gardens and uh, there was a party going on down the road and uh, the mother named Monica, we've talked a bit about Monica in previous episodes, my apprentice gardener, she's actually quite accomplished already and quite the insect lady. (laughs) She was the one that lent me ladybugs. Anyway, so she brought a child named Stella, and Stella had a nut she couldn't identify. She was maybe, gosh, looked like about four years old. Maybe you could help us, Monica said. I told her the story of my shag bark hickory experience when I first moved here, and that is I was weeding this one garden, and uh, as I was doing so, a nut fell on my head, and it's, gosh, the size of a golf ball, and that is a shag bark hickory nut. So there you go, Stella. I adore this tree. It's just so cool, but it's not one that many people know about or probably want in their garden. But before we get started with that, I'm going to go grab my iced tea, in this case. It's a little too warm for hot tea. And I will be right back. But I do hear those cicadas. Hey, by the way, did the invasion occur in your neighborhood? I have had a little evidence here and there of the cicada invasion of 2021. I've seen the molting shell of the insect. And the other day I was walking back from a road walk and Jolie was not letting me take a photo of a what I thought was a dead cicada on the road. It was perfectly intact so I was using my iPhone to get a close-up of it and just as I was about to grab the shot Jolie's nose got to the little critter and it took off in flight so I didn't get a photo. But he was an annual cicada, not a periodic one, as is Brood X coming to town in 2021, we heard so much about. But what happened to the cicadas? Do you know? Because I haven't read about it. If any of you know, please email me at askmarystone at gmail.com. I'd be curious if any of you have had, indeed, an invasion of the cicadas, as they predicted. Seems like a lot of things sometimes they talk about in anticipation doesn't come to be. Hmm... There's something in that lesson, isn't there? 
So a new client of mine desires to have a vegetable garden near a black walnut tree. She's hoping to have fruit trees as well, and I wrote a story about Elizabeth. Last week I had the privilege of visiting with Elizabeth, who moved back to Blairstown from Chicago to be near her family. She purchased a farm built in the 1800s and is amid renovating and restoring the house and barn. Elizabeth wishes for a landscape design filled with native plants and natural hardscape materials to enhance the gorgeous property's views and function while being kind to wildlife. Music to my ears. There are two stunning native black walnut trees. One is a grand focal point. Next to it, a remnant foundation that Elizabeth would like to use as a boundary around dwarf fruit trees. Or it could serve as a border for a vegetable garden. So on with the investigative hat to find out what fruits and veggies will thrive in the vicinity of black walnut. Eastern black walnut are fascinating trees as they produce juglone, a natural herbicide that makes them allopathic, a fancy word for emitting chemicals that harm other plants. The chemical gives black walnut an advantage over non-tolerant plants competing for resources. All parts of the tree contain it, including the roots. Juglone inhibits the ability of susceptible plants to take up nutrients in water. Symptoms include yellowing and wilting leaves, first on new growth, then throughout the plant, stunting its growth or even killing it. While the greatest concentration of juglone is under the canopy, known as the tree's drip line, the roots can go way beyond that. Essentially, roots grow as wide as the tree's height. Plus, the natural herbicide can leach into rainwater that encounters the fallen leaves branches and decaying nuts. Therefore, it's best not to locate any plants that can't survive juglone within 50 to 80 feet. And perhaps it's evident, don't add remnants from black walnut trees into your compost or mulch used around non-tolerant plants. I'm going to take a little side note here about my own vegetable garden. I have to tell you, it is not beautiful. It is certainly not beautiful, but it's functional. I am calling it my experimental garden because I never did get to the um, organization of a proper fence. So I've been using those green stakey things, you know, those ones you get at the hardware store and um, pounded them in myself. Kurt helped me with some of them. And I used deer netting around that. And uh, it's really funny because as I've gone through the season, I've had to heighten the uh, deer netting because certain someone's that have cute little fuzzy faces <laughs> hover over it and we're nibbling. But it's okay to share a little bit with nature, you know, that is something we talked about. For every bit of planting we do, we should allow nature to have its share. So the other day, I went out there, I had missed going up there for maybe two days, and I was, <laughs> I was shocked to see how large some of the zucchini became. So they're still quite delicious. Last time we harvested them, I sliced them up and grilled them. They were just so delicious. So I'm enjoying my garden. I hope you are too. I call it my experiment because I haven't had a vegetable garden in, I don't even want to admit this, 20 years. So I've made some mistakes, but they're not mistakes. We learn from everything we do. Even if, you know, we have mistakes, it's lessons, lessons in growing forward. Getting back to Elizabeth's question. Fruit trees that can thrive despite juglone include cherry, plum, peach, and nectarine. Shrubs such as quince and black raspberry will also do well. Sadly, favorites such as pears, apple trees, 
blueberry and blackberry bushes will suffer or die if planted near black walnut. The same is true of many vegetables such as tomatoes, eggplant, potatoes, peppers, peas, asparagus, cabbage, and rhubarb. So those are the ones that you should not plant near them. But there are workarounds. Workarounds for favorite veggies, if space is limited, preventing a garden far from the walnuts, are installing raised beds. Add weed, berry, or fabric before adding the soil to the raised beds to avoid walnut roots from invading. Be sure the beds are beyond the risk of falling debris and add plenty of compost to assure good drainage. Potted gardens are ideal as the pots themselves provide the barrier to entering roots or Choose vegetable tolerance of juglone, which includes beets, corn, carrots, cauliflower, melon, squash, soybeans, snap peas, lima beans, onions, garlic, leeks, parsnip, and parsley. It takes several years for the roots of fallen black walnut to decay and lose their toxicity, so removing them is not a quick fix. Not that I would ever suggest removing Elizabeth's glorious trees. Black walnuts make the most magnificent shade trees, I believe, although, again, the nuts can be a little problematic, especially if you happen to be below one when it falls. Much like being beaned by shagbark hickory nuts while gardening below them the first time spring arrived. Talk about the element of surprise, but it came with a good laugh. Shagbarks, by the way, also produce juglone, but not to the level of black walnut. And as it turns out, pecans are in the same family as hickory and walnuts and taste very similar. So that inspires me to maybe take a nibble. Beyond veggies and fruits, if you like other plants within 50 to 80 feet of black walnut, there's some that do just fine, such as aster, astilbe, bee balm, black-eyed susans, daylilies, ferns, phlox, sweet woodruff, and pachysandra are just a few that work well. Recently, I met with dog owners Rachel and Chip of Hardwick, New Jersey, who have a healthy population of black walnut trees, much to their chagrin. Though the nuts themselves do not harm dogs, it's the nuts mold, if ingested, that can cause seizures. Horses exposed to black walnut can suffer from laminitis, resulting in pain and lameness as well. Hence, it's best to move nuts away from pets as soon as they drop, which does seem laborious, but it would be a shame to remove the magnificent native shade trees with their fern-like foliage that turns brilliant yellow in fall and their showy, deep, ridged bark. Black walnuts feed the same wildlife as shagbark hickories and are also edible to those willing to tackle their husks. Woodworkers covet black walnut, too. For every living thing, there is a great purpose. Garden dilemmas? AskMaryStone.com Speaking of, my bumbled radishes served a purpose, a lesson in growing forward. So next time I plant my radish seeds, I will take to heart you're supposed to thin them as they say you should do. I ended up with these little pea-sized radishes. It was really, really kind of sad. But I saved some seeds, so I'm going to do a fall planting. So just as in the spring, you should plant your radish seeds four to six weeks before the average date of the last spring frost. Oh, this is so funny, as I am uh, reminding myself when you're supposed to plant radish seeds. <laughs> now I know what happened. In addition to planting them too close, I mean, the seeds are so tiny, it's hard to 
have them not stick to your fingers and and that was my problem so I just kind of just put them in and I said oh I will thin them when they sprout which I never did so I had little pea-sized radishes well as it turns out you're supposed to plant them four to six weeks prior to your last spring frost and in the fall you should plant them four to six weeks before the prediction of your first fall frost so I hope that makes sense so I now learned something new <laughs> or something old refreshed in my mind Boy, it's amazing what you forget after 20 years of not doing a vegetable garden. <laughs> Thank goodness gardens are forgiving. So I mentioned black-eyed Susans, known as Rebecca, or Rude Becky, I call it, because it is a very prolific self-spreader, but they're beautiful, sunny yellow with those black centers. I received a very fun email from a gal named Dory who lives in Lebanon, Connecticut. She had come upon a column about my distorted black-eyed Susans, and so she wrote me with a question, and I'm going to share that column titled, Fascinating Anomaly of Fasciation. Hello, fellow readers. I enjoy being stumped by mysterious and sometimes magnificent garden dilemmas. Dory of Lebanon, Connecticut, found my previous column about deformed flowers on black-eyed Susan, the culprit, insects, and a pathogen named Aster Yellow's disease. But I had never seen artful, extended centers of Rebecca and coneflower, which is echinacea, such as those in the photos Dory sent. She writes, A couple of stalks of one of my black-eyed Susan plants are wide, and the blossoms have weird, elongated centers. I was showing my sister, and when she got home to Vermont, she found a few on her coneflowers. It's odd because the entire plant isn't infected, just a stem or two. Do you have any idea of the problem? After reaching out to two favored puzzle solvers and digging deeper into the dilemma, it turns out it's not a problem at all, but a beautiful anomaly called fasciation. So one of my problem solvers is Lynn from the Warren County Rutgers Cooperative. Who writes, I have never seen it before. It's sure unique looking. If you do not see any symptoms of Aster disease, maybe it's just some crazy mutation. Go ahead and get a lottery ticket now, smiley face. I should note that if weed killers or herbicides drift into your garden, it can cause deformities in the new growth of plants. One of the reasons I forego them. In fact, I had a client down in Piscataway, New Jersey that I believe overspray actually killed their creeping time, the bulk of it. So that was a sad fate. One of the reasons I don't use it. But if there's no evidence of chemical damage, it's likely fasciation. At the risk of getting too scientific, not my forte, I'll describe it like this. The meristematic cells of plants develop into the various parts of a plant, the stems, the leaves, or the flowers. With fasciation, the cells flatten, causing stems to broaden or flower centers to spread out looking as though it's two-headed. It can also cause an overabundance of leaves and flower buds in areas of the plant, which is likely why Dory said that hers was exceptionally wide, the particular plant. The mistake, and I put in quotes, is like an unintentional genetic modification, a defect in the DNA code. Or it could be caused by insect damage or viral infection. It's most noticeable in stems, looking like flattened ribbon-like stems or twisted stems or bushy growth. And in blooms, it often looks like two flowers are fused, much like conjoined tomatoes or squash. Speaking of, a lifelong friend, Dottie of Fishkill, New York, 
posted a Siamese twin yellow squash on Facebook. They appear to have grown together because they were too close to each other on the stem. But it's actually a result of pollinators fertilizing two of the flower ovaries instead of one. I've read it occurs about as often as a set of twins. I like to think of these as magical mutations, not a mistake. Fasciation is not contagious, nor likely to come back again on the same plant. However, plants are cultivated to have fasciated blossoms and stems, such as the coxcomb, an annual here. Celosia argentea, variation cristata, is a fuzzy favorite with unusual scarlet combs that are crumpled and lobed. In the case of coxcomb, the fasciation passes along to the next generation of seeds. Those are fall favorites, by the way. And uh, there's pictures on the Garden Dilemma's website. So unless you see the signs of disease, Dory, enjoy the artful, slightly freaky, and fun anomaly. Mother Nature can be so clever. Garden Dilemmas? AskMaryStone.com Well, I've sure enjoyed our visit, despite all the sounds of cicadas in the trees and thanks so much for coming by and I look forward to speaking with you again from the screen porch and I invite you to email me at askmarystone at gmail.com if you have questions or suggestions and if you haven't yet please subscribe to the podcast so it magically appears in your feed and share with others who you think may enjoy it as well thanks so much it's been so fun to hear from you and uh, I hope we continue to grow our community see you next time you can follow Garden Dilemmas on Facebook or online at GardenDilemmas.com and on Instagram at hashtag Mary Elaine Stone. Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries is produced by Alex Bartling. Thanks for coming by. I look forward to chatting again from my screen porch. And always remember to embrace the unexpected in this garden of life. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.